Welcome to Voices from the Past, a mini-podcast from Plymouth Plantation. We're taking you behind the scenes with the museum's historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters as they prepare to stage the 1623 wedding of Plymouth's governor, William Bradford, to Alice Southworth. Today we're speaking with Kathleen Wall, our foodways culinarian, and Dr. Tony Mariello, master baker at the Plymouth Bread Company. Welcome to our podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, before, before we get too far into discussing the Bradford wedding in particular, um, can you guys tell us a little bit about what foodways is and where this term actually came from? Um, foodways is a term that was stolen from the folklore community, and it's also used in anthropology. And when Jay Anderson was here at Plymouth Plantation, he um, redefined it for living history. So it's about perception and... Um, procurement and preservation and preparation. Um, so it's everything about food. So it's looking at archaeology and anthropology. It's looking at historical documents and paintings. So everything about food, a real 360 um, view of what food is at a particular time for a particular people. So what does that mean for Plymouth Plantation? How do you bring that idea of foodways and convert it into an exhibit for our visitors to see? Um, the first thing is to decide what is the food shed that's available. So that means looking at our historical sources to see what's there, um, looking at archaeology to see what pollen samples and bone fragments tell us what they're using. Um, also looking at probate inventories to see what are the things that they brought with them, what are the things they have left. And those are just the things they mention. And sometimes you have to sort of bridge the gaps for the things they don't mention. A lot of times our visitors ask us about about recipes, about where we get our recipes. And Tawny, I know that when you joined Plymouth Plantation, there was a little bit of a trial and error process mm -hmm. with bread recipes. Can you talk a little bit about how we take this food waste culture and actually create recipes that our staff can use? Um, well, I was very lucky that um, Kathleen had been doing exactly that for years and years and years. So she <laughs> helped me greatly by providing me with um, a lot of the same sources that were already being used in the village. Um, so we had 17th century cookbooks and we had essentially the same sources that we use for interpreting. We had looking at Mort's relation, looking at um, William Bradford's um, letters, looking at um, John Jocelyn, I think has the nicest description of thirded bread. That's where we essentially found the description of thirded bread and the, the detailed process of how it was made. Um, but of course you never know how their ovens were or um, how much water they used. Um, they give very imprecise figures, so that's where the, the trial and error comes into play. Bacon till done is not as helpful yeah, for exactly. modern bakers or modern exactly. cooks as it would be if you were a 17th century housewife. The description of bread in New England in particular, there are two of them. They're written by men 30 years after the fact. Oh, when we first came here, this is how bread was made. And they describe the process, but they don't describe the bread itself. Mm. So if you have a description of the bread, you know what you're working towards. If you have the process, and as she said, no... Um, proportion of water to flour, no sense of how long it was baked or how hot the oven was. Um, so you have an incredible amount of leeway on what could be right or what could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're always looking, we're always re-examining it, we're always trying something different, saying, well, what about this? How does this work? 
And I know a lot of our source material, especially with creating recipes and writing menus for our interpretive sites and for the bakery, rely on sources that were written by men. We don't have a lot of sources from a woman's perspective. Women are doing the domestic cooking in this period. So does that, I mean, obviously that's going to pose a challenge because we don't have a lot of the the instincts and the um, sort of cultural training that these women would have had in their own environments. Um, the first thing is most none of these women cook from cookbooks. I'm pretty sure we have no cookbooks associated with Plymouth Colony throughout its entire history from 1620 to 1692 and have no reason to think that any of these women would be cooking from cookbooks. They were taught by their mothers. They cook to the taste of their husbands or their fathers. They cook with what's on hand. They make it taste like what they remember, whatever that is. And so there's this whole um, sort of... Um, there's a phrase in Appalachia, they call it um, cutting against the thumb. It has nothing to do with professional cooking techniques. We've been so very influenced by trained French chefs um, in the 19th century, over the entire 20th century, um, that we forget a lot of cooking is you go to the garden and you take this out before it's gone and you're, you're using that and you're putting together flavors that remind you of something you had years ago. Um, and so, and we just don't have that. We don't have that recorded. So thinking about this very organic way of putting food on the table, looking at how we're getting ready for the Bradford wedding, this is a huge event. This is um, not only a huge event in the life of these two people, but it is a big event for Plymouth Colony. So how are we taking the the knowledge that we have about how food is prepared um, and and putting it through that lens as this is a diplomatic event where we have dignitaries coming from Poconocet, Wampanoag dignitaries. How is this influencing the way you guys are planning the menu for this event? Well, you have um, people who've been living in Plymouth Colony for um, almost three years. You have people who are newly arrived. Um, more than half of the English village has been there for less than a month when this wedding comes. Some of them know that a wedding, and several of them come to get married. So there are several weddings. Mm -hmm. This isn't the only wedding that happens at this time. Um, and then we also know what's available in New England at that time of year um, that they can draw upon. Um, and um, so there's, there's all these different perceptions and then there are, are different sources. We know um, from a letter that Massasoit brings deer as a gift um, to the governor and a turkey. Um, we know um, that they are roasted and that there are other roasted meats besides. We know that some of the deer are baked into large pies called pasties. Um, and we don't have the rest of the menu. We don't even know how long this lasted. It could have lasted two or three days. Um, it could have been an afternoon. Maybe the roasted venison was only at the table with the governor and Massasoit um, and not so much for everybody else. Um, it's, it's just there's so much we don't know too. Can we draw or infer um, from sources about weddings of people of the similar nature back in England, of how those customs dividing up the roasted meats, for example, how it may have been done in England and make inferences about Plymouth, or is that that treading in unclear water? That's um, not... That's not entirely how weddings go um, in England. So you get, when you are married, you might have a big celebration. You might have next to no celebration. The whole term bride ale that we use to describe this actually comes from people selling ale after they're married to raise funds for the married couple. So mm -hmm. a bride ale has a very traditional and um, 
sort of um, very functional, like you don't necessarily bring gifts to the bride and groom, you're not necessarily invited to the wedding, you, you know, might hear music or, or heard the bands um, read at church, and so you sort of show up, and maybe you get um, some pie, or maybe you get some sweet, but maybe you'll get a cup of ale, and you'll leave some money behind, um, and that's going to more than cover the price of the ale. Um, there are a tradition of giving gifts at weddings, and so the Lord of the Manor might bestow venison, ironically, on a bridal couple, on one of his tenants, um, because venison is only for noblemen back in England, so that anybody can sit down and eat this is sort of a new way of thinking for Englishmen in New England. For Englishmen in New England, with venison in particular, would the fact that it was a gift from a king, uh, Massaso being often named as the king of the Poconokets, uh, ease, their, ease their anxiety perhaps about eating venison? Or what do you think this was just the most exciting dish they'd ever seen in their life? Oh, I think the venison alone would have been exciting. The fact that there are 19 native men there. Um, oh no, there's more than that at this wedding. 90, 100, 120. 120, yes, I'm sorry. Who then, who then sing and um, put down their bows. There's a lot of different things going on mm -hmm. in a very short description that we have. Um, so, um, and for many of these people, it might be their first encounter with um, indigenous people. Um, and that in itself is, um, you know, what did they heard, what did they heard before they come here? Um, what were they expecting? Um, how does this alter their expectations? So today in modern weddings, um, of course, the food is, a, is, a, is the centerpiece. So much of the ceremony of modern weddings revolves around the dinner and, of course, the cake. Um, Tony, what can you tell us about wedding cakes in the 17th century? Were, would the Bradfords have had a wedding cake here in Plymouth? Well, because we know that they um, had a venison pasty and that people had recently come to bring supplies to Plymouth Colony, um, I can infer that there was flour. Um, that it's very possible that they used the flour to make a cake for this event because it was not just a special event for the couple, but for the whole community. Um, most cakes during the 17th century were remarkably similar. You had a yeasted spice cake with dried fruit, and that cake um, was what you served at weddings, at funerals, um, at christenings. Um, when I make the wedding cake, I um, try to look at different recipes for these different cakes and recipes from different areas of England at that time and then combine it into something that works well with my oven. So the cake that I make for the Bradford wedding is much more like a very large Banbury cake um, so that I don't have to worry about the, which is just a spice cake with a layer of dough pulled over it. So it's almost like a, a crust, like a cake encased in more cake. Um, and that allows the fruit to not burn on the bottom of the oven. There's a very practical reason. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a legitimate way of baking for this because mm -hmm. I think that they would have been looking for practical ways of creating the foods that they were comfortable with mm -hmm. um, in their current environment. So I, I think that that is something that would have been attempted and those kinds of adjustments would be made. For weddings back in England, would... Uh, would a couple have gone to a baker to purchase a bride cake or would this be something that would be prepared at home? Hmm. Depends on where you are. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. I've mm -hmm. seen references to both. Um, you need a big oven for this because um, essentially these spice cakes are like heavily spiced, filled with extra butter and cream, raisin breads. Like the raisin and the currants are kind of an important way of sweetening it. And um, 
So it's it's an expensive deal, so you want to make yes. sure it comes out well. So it sound it sounds absolutely delicious. Yeah. Um, and so it sounds like a lot of the a lot of the work that goes into a wedding from a food perspective. Um, obviously, there's the day of the wedding. There's a lot of prep. There's a lot of prep leading up to the wedding. Um, what where are you in your preparation stages? Have you started preparing yet, or are you, do you more have a sort of forty eight hour window before the event that you do most of your preparation? Oh no, we've we've um, already started because we had to decide on a menu and sort of decide on. Um, what the thinking would be behind each item that's on the table. Um, you sort of have to cast your table. Um, so the same way that we would cast the guests. Um, so we've already, I've procured some venison. Um, so we'll have that. Um, we're also going to bake a couple of these pasties blind. Um, that is, they're gonna be filled with flour, um, which I learned from one of the period cookbooks because that's what you do if you wanna bake birds or put live frogs on your table. You fill the pastry with flour, then you cut a hole in the bottom and shake the flour out, and then you put your live animals in it. But we're not gonna put live animals in, we're just gonna leave the flour there. That's how you entertain your guests at a wedding in the 17th century. So they cut open the pie and the frogs jump all over the table and the ladies jump up and squeal. And that's considered good entertainment in the 17th century. We're not going to do that. Um, but yeah, so we've already had to look on how we're gonna get some of these things. We can't count on someone showing up with four deer and a turkey on the day that we can then prepare. Um, so we, we sort of have to decide all of these things in advance. Um, so besides the venison pasties and the turkey, what are some other cast members of your menu? Um, I've been thinking that since so many of them are so newly arrived and since there was sort of knowledge of a number of weddings here, we're going to try um, some different kinds of salads. One is a salad of smelts, which are a local fish, usually caught, um, that are actually put into vinegar um, and then served um, with um, olive oil and more vinegar and um, a little grated orange. And I'm debating now whether we'll actually have the orange or not. Um, mm -hmm. because that's the sort of thing that travels well in a ship. Um, so you could bring it over. It would still be good um, the two weeks after that ship arrived. Um, we're looking at um, other venison dishes, um, looking at different kinds of salads that won't wilt under a mid-August heat because um, I don't want to poison anybody. Uh, <laughs> Always important to consider. Yeah. <laughs> so um, most of the food we have on the table will... Um, be available to eat. Oh, I have to make something out of turkey since we know that a turkey came to the wedding. Um, so we're debating um, whether that should be a pie um, because a lot of wild fowl, a lot of fowl, a lot of birds were put into pies. Um, and since we know there were other pies at the wedding, we might have that. We've got um, the venison to roast as well. Um, so just, just looking at those different sorts of things. What about what about drink on the table? We know they drank a lot of spring water here. The right. springs were a huge uh, attraction for these folks when they were looking for a place to settle. Um, but with so many people newly arrived, would they have had beer, other kinds of spirits? They don't mention the beer. Um, wine is pretty likely. Um, aquavit is pretty likely. Um, I think our table, we're going to stay mostly with um, water this year. We've tried different drink at other... I mean, each time we do one of these events, we sort of change it up a little bit because we don't want to fall into the trap where we start believing our exhibit. Um, <laughs> so we want to examine the sources each time and make decisions each time. So we, we sort of reinvent it a little bit each time we do it. 
Well, and that keeps it fresh for the visitors as well. Yes. That if we, for members who come yeah. back wedding after wedding, or they they came to the Bradford wedding and t last time we did it 2012, mm -hmm. it's going to be different this yeah. time. So mm -hmm. that helps. Um, how much of the work do site interpreters do on the day and how much work is done by your staff in the kitchen? Um, we do, they'll be doing work during the course of the week. We'll also be doing some of the preparation work um, in the new exhibit, America's First Test Kitchen, which is um, a modern voice site that we now have um, in the museum um, to tell part of the English history. So we'll be baking the bread, we'll be um, making up the bread dough for the bride ale there. Uh, we'll be making up some of the um, pastry um, for the different pies there as well. And do you bake the pies on site or will Tony, will you bake them in your oven in the Plymouth Bread Company? Um, I believe that most of them will be made on site. Um, the ones that will be made in the Plymouth Bread Company are just for, not at all, not for the display, but for right. visitors to consume. Mm -hmm. So people will have a chance to try a taste of the 17th century in the craft center. They will. Mm -hmm. That's very exciting. I know a lot of people usually ask if they can taste something right. and on site we cannot feed people. Right. Uh, so it'll be great opportunity for visitors to have that, to have that taste. But speaking about visitors and interacting with visitors um, on our living history sites, what is the most common uh, food-related uh, visitor question that you get? Mostly people come in thinking food didn't taste good in the past, which makes me think they didn't have happy childhoods. Um, but um, they're always surprised when something smells good. They're always surprised when something looks good. Um, there was a lot of good food in the past. Um, it had really quality ingredients to work with. Um, and a lot of times their preparations were fairly simple and straightforward. So um, that helps too. And the English love butter. So, And I'm personally of the opinion that there is very little food that can be ruined by putting more butter in. <laughs> so, um, so that works too. Even the Indian cornbread can be improved by frying yeah, it in yes, butter yeah. with sugar on top. <laughs> what about you, Tony? People are always surprised that the British made yeasted bread in the 17th century. Um, I think they expected it to be sourdough, hmm. and I think they also can, they think of yeast as this modern invention that you buy from a supermarket in powdered form, that that is what yeast is. Um, and then I explained that it was from beer brewing and that that was the tradition, mm -hmm. um, that was the British baking tradition. Um, but that's always something that people seem very surprised about. Do you use a beer-based yeast for the third of bread at the Plymouth Bread Company? Um, I use a modern yeast for the bread that we sell in the gift shop. We use beer-based yeast for breads that we give to visitors as samples because it's a very different product and it creates a very different bread and it's different every time and it tastes different every time. So when we do do that, we just give it away as samples. And I believe that that's one of the things that we're always up against, not just in food ways, but whenever we try to recreate any sort of historic technology where you're not certain as you're doing it if this is what was expected, like you were saying, what the end product is, or if there was a trick um, of which you are unaware. <laughs> and you have to do it a number of times before you, I think, decide, like, nope, this is what was expected, and this is how it was supposed to taste, and this is um, what, you know, this would have been a very good result, or you eventually figure the trick out and think, oh, this is how they did it, this is what it's supposed to taste like, this is how I get a consistent result. I think modern audiences also are very used to industrialized food where yes. everything mm -hmm. looks the same, smells the same, yes. tastes the same. Yeah. 
And so the variation that you might have in a bread just from one baking, you might see subtle variations in each loaf mm-hmm. are not, are, are surprising to visitors because they're so used to this industrial mm-hmm. food system Absolutely. that they're not, they, they have a hard time sort of putting themselves back. But again, the trick I think is true for visitors on our living history sites. Once they find that magic balance where they can suspend disbelief and go in their minds back into this mindset, this pre-industrial world. Um, I, I found from my time on the sites that you have, you have great encounters with people, but it does take that, that magic trick, mm-hmm. that magic moment, and it's different for every person, how you can finally sort of do the final crossing over and, and engage with, with that history. Well, it sounds like the food's going to be delicious and uh, smell wonderful. And hopefully everyone who's listening to our podcast will have their mouths watering. I know mine is. Uh, and that they will join us on August 15th for the 1623 William Bradford wedding. Uh, this is Voices from the Past with Kathleen Wall and Tommy Mariello. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.